0: (laughs) Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show Karina Faith is a British writer and director who recently made her feature debut with The Power. The Power tells the story of a young nurse who is forced to work the night shift in a crumbling hospital during a time when England was plunged into mandatory blackouts every night to conserve power. This is actually true. As she works her shifts by candlelight, a terrifying presence threatens to consume her and everyone around her. The Power is a very atmospheric and spooky supernatural thriller, and the concept of nightly blackouts in an asylum is extremely effective and very eerie. The Power is now streaming on Shudder. Karina and I discuss the making of The Power, her supernatural research process, and big director lessons from her first feature— All this and so much more on today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, please give it up for director of the power, Karina Faith. Karina, how's it going?
1: Hi. Very well, thank you. Good, good. Great to
0: talk. Yeah, it's great to talk to you too. So I'm a, I'm a huge supernatural fan. and I'm always curious about the kind of inception of every, everybody who does a supernatural movie, there's, it, their supernatural element has its own kind of rules and mythology. And I'm curious how you arrived at yours.
1: Um, I am probably of all the areas of genre films, ghost stories are my favorite. Um, and I was actually looking specifically for a ghost story to write. Mm-hmm. I think they're actually really hard to, to find the right kind of nub that's strong enough um, and has enough difference to expand on because mm-hmm. it is such a classic form. Um, but I was, um, I was, it was a long time ago that I started um, writing the project like a good Six years, mm-hmm. and at the time um, there was a huge amount of um, news breaking about a hidden institutional scandal in this oh, wow. country from the 1970s specifically which is also another era I was really interested in setting something in because a lot of films that I like from that time so I started getting interested in that that area generally um, and I found the stories so of the people that had been put through this experience and then blamed um, just so sad i was uh, I was looking at that area and i I was so um just so sad to think about the people who'd been kind of lost in those institutions and the children whose childhood had been, had been lost in them um and it felt like that was kind of the same texture as a ghost story. Mm. This kind of, you know, it's real and it really happened to all these people. But there's something that's left behind um, in these places and in these people's lives, something that people don't always see, can't see, don't want to see. Um, and I felt um, that was an area that I really wanted to write about. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the rules of the world, it was it was all about trying to kind of... Um, honor the the reality of of those places um, and base everything from that.
0: Yeah, I think there's something very chilling about earlier institutions that were... Well, they were the really early ones, like in the 20s and early 1900s and before that where things were just really abominable. But there was that... I forgot what it was called. It was that enormous scandal that occurred... I think it was here in New York where there was a... uh, um, they just found that the patients were treated basically like barnyard animals. People would walk in. There's very disturbing footage of it um, where p- the people would walk in and they would all be on the floors. Nobody would be taking care of them. They'd be living in their own filth. They'd be eating off of the floor like it was an abomination. And this wasn't that long ago. This was like in the 70s, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you mm. know the
0: case I'm talking about? Was that part of- I,
1: I don't, but it, it, in some ways it doesn't surprise me because- um, looking just reading around that time um i think a lot of the big powerful institutions were very similar but i was yeah. looking at hospitals in particular and the power structures i mean it was like being in the army really mm. you know there was the kind of general and um i'm gonna have a, a little scene a moment in the film where the nurses part into two lines for the matron and the chief of the hospital to walk through and that was taken from the diary of a real nurse at the time oh, But wow. the level of of power that came down and trickled through um uh to whoever was on the bottom right um i think was uh, was probably the same everywhere in the world so yeah i mean it's a scenario ripe for um horrendous behavior
0: yeah with so much history in those places and so many just horrific occurrences i'm mm. surprised that more of those um More of those institutions are not severely haunted. I think there is one, and again, I keep forgetting the name of these places, but there's a former sanitarium in Connecticut that is completely shuttered, and they have guards outside making sure people don't go in because young kids would go in in the middle of the night and then they would do like <laughs> vigils and, and they would try to like conjure spirits. And apparently it's super haunted and people get injured all the time. And they have to have armed, I don't know if they're armed, but they have, they have guards outside making sure people
1: don't go That's in. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. That, is, that is so interesting. I mean, they are kind of, they're such incredible places. Um, we, had, we did actually film in a real hospital um, that was built um kind of late victorian era and it was a psychiatric hospital actually um but the i can see why people who want to experience something extreme are drawn <laughs> to yeah. the real places because that they do have incredibly strong atmospheres whether you believe in ghosts or not they they have something so potent and different about them to any other kind of space and i think you can just feel the layers of history yeah. and the I suppose the suffering, really, that's happened in those kind of spaces.
2: Yeah,
0: I feel like the energy gets trapped in those spaces. Did you you go on any field trips to places that had this kind of history?
1: Um, Yeah, we went, we looked at quite a few different places because I had one real, real wish, which was to shoot it in a real um, hospital. Yeah. Being very low budget, we wanted to use whatever we could um, to... To lend it scale um, and atmosphere, mm-hmm. and I felt that we could. I really wanted to try and capture just a tiny little bit of what we're talking about in in the space in the filming of it. Um, and we went to a few places, and they. I mean, they were all extremely strange and creepy places because they were huge and they were completely empty. Yeah, um, they don't last for very long here because they get developed fairly quickly into flats. Um, so we were losing them as fast as we were finding them but we did actually um, end up finding one that had a larger part of it been more recently closed down um, and the whole thing was available just before the shoot and and it was actually in east london where the story set so that was really nice oh wow
0: that's great yeah really great so Could you walk us through the process of getting the movie made? Like what was it like from the inception of the idea to writing it to finally here you have a finished movie made? What was the production story behind it?
1: Um, The beginning was that I had just had um, a film that was very close to coming together to being made and didn't happen. Okay. Um, So that was a big blow and I was, looking for the next story to kind of latch onto, pick myself up, carry on, push on, and try and make it happen Mm -hmm. a second time. Um, And as I said, this this is what was around me at the time. Um, I was watching quite a lot of films from that era. um, And then I came across an image of a woman holding, um, a woman in 70s clothes, but holding a very kind of classic gothic looking oil lamp and working as a telephonist. Um, and I, 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 this was from the blackouts in the early seventies and I didn't actually really know much about them myself.
2: About the
0: blackouts in it, England.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I knew I, I kind of knew it happened, but, and I was actually a tiny baby when it happened, but, um, I hadn't really ever looked into it. And the, the marriage of the kind of sexual politics of what was happening then, um, which is what's interesting to me about sexual politics of today as well. Um, and that period with this very classic Gothic ghostly setting, I was just very excited by all those things. And it was quite a kind of whole concept straight yeah. away. That it was quite easy to go. Um, it's going to be about this and it's going to look like that. And and that picture became my kind of um, part of my pitch.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, and the, um, the BFI, the British Film Institute were kind of in early on the development and funded the whole process in terms of the script writing. Oh, wow. Um, yeah.
0: Can you tell us how the British Institute got involved? Uh,
1: So, because I, I'd nearly got this film off the ground with them and it didn't happen. Um, but there, I, I kind of had what I would describe as um, a mentor and a champion there who, although that never happened, she held out some belief for me that I would be able to make film. And I cannot emphasize enough how powerful that has been just to have a few people out there who invest a bit of confidence back in you, especially when it's taken a long time, things haven't happened, um, that is enough to actually really give you quite a lot of stamina. Um, so she was the one, Lizzie Frankie was the one who um, who commissioned the treatment um, with another body, Creative England at the time. Um, and then it was a rather long, convoluted kind of four-year development process. Yeah. Uh, while I was working on other things as well um, and having a baby, and it, it took some time. Um, it was. It's very interesting writing in that space because um, because it is so classic, it's, in a way it's quite easy to come up with endless ideas of spooky scenes, oh, yeah. scary scenes, that, things that might be a bit cool, um, but to actually get the ones that are right for your story and to make them feel that they fit in that world and aren't just general,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, that took a bit of time actually
0: what was that research process like? Did you, I mean, did you dive a lot into books about the supernatural? I'm sure you watched a lot of supernatural movies. What did it,
1: what did that research look Um, like? There was a lot of historical research because I was just really interested in the kind of actual experience of being a young woman going into that kind of, into that kind of hospital setting at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Supernatural wise, I I did, I watched stuff as they came, but I think it's kind of a bit in my DNA. Yeah. It, I mean, like, I've from as soon as I could read, I was obsessed with fairy tales and, and ghost stories and anything that I could get my hands on in that kind of space and gothic fiction. And um, I've always loved it. So um, it was maybe more about going back to Touchstone films. Mm. Um, and just really thinking about why why they worked for me. Um, a big influence on this was The Innocence by Jack Clayton. Oh,
0: yeah. It's a great one.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, that had a big impact on me the first time I saw it. Um, I love that it's so restrained um, and kind of creeps, gets under your skin quite slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to try... And create a similar effect with this one.
0: Yeah, that's been remade so many times recently. There was a re- there was a movie <coughs> remake and then the Haunting of Hill House was entirely based on it too. But the original, mm-hmm. the black and white movie is it's an absolute masterpiece. It's so so elegantly done and eerie and yeah, it's it's a really, really great one.
1: Yeah, it's great because you um the, the kind of sense of malice is quite Ambiguous, yeah, and you never really know whether there was a kind of. It's not really about good or bad or evil. Um, it's about the kind of whole, the whole set of relationships in that place. Yeah, um, and and the lead character isn't straightforward either.
0: Right, and the implications um, of all of this on children, which you touch on in your movie yeah. as well, which I thought was yeah. interesting.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I suppose children being witness to adult behavior um, and how that, the, the idea of, of children being innocent at all in the first place and then and then how what they're seeing affects them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I love that in that film because it's very ambiguous. Um, I mean, I think in, in our story, the, the one central child isn't and she is an innocent in yeah. a more straightforward way um but i i do love that kind of the presence of children in horror films in in supernatural films because oh, yeah. um it just raises the stakes up. right <laughs> <laughs> it does um there's also some i mean there's i don't think i've ever been as scared right of anything is when I was a child, when I was tiny, that pure kind of terror. I think Mm -hmm. I can still remember it and still relate to it. And I think when I see a child in that situation, I'm taken back to that place.
0: Yeah, Mm. I miss that place. I miss being legitimately (laughs) frightened of movies. It's been a while since the movies- Does
1: it not work Not so much.
0: (laughs) It takes like some really extreme stuff to get under my skin these days. But but uh, yeah, I miss that childhood feeling of being scared.
2: And being yeah. afraid
0: of, you know, is this movie a little too intense for me and just kind of braving through scarier movies. Yeah. I yeah. miss that feeling. It's hard to get yeah. it back, but all you can, the only way to get it back is through nostalgia. I think for me anyway.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess there was a bit of nostalgia in this for me, um, in that I probably my most intense, um, joyful experiences of this genre were kind of teenage area of life. Um, but in our story, it is a story about um, the vulnerability of being young and of being a child and, mm-hmm. you know, being small in a huge place and how easy it is to get lost.
0: Yeah. There's a really striking. Well, first of all, I think the idea of setting this during a time period when England would, historically speaking, to save power would put, it was it was London, right? Was it just London?
1: No, it was actually UK-wide. It was
0: all of the UK. Wow. Yeah, the UK was plunged into darkness every single night. There'd be intentional blackouts to save power. And I mean, my God, what a perfect setting for a horror movie, for a ghost story. But there's a very striking scene when the main protagonist, a woman, is pushed basically into darkness. And it felt very potently symbolic. Could you tell us? a little more about just the overall larger symbols that were at play here in the story?
1: Yeah, um, I think it was a really interesting process making the film because I think there were some layers that emerged when I actually saw what I'd written being shot that mm-hmm. um, I hadn't really quite understood how many layers for me there were. Um, it's it's about a girl who doesn't really have a voice, um, who has a past that she um, has not been allowed to express. Mm-hmm. Um, she's silenced, and I think I wanted it to feel that a lot of the characters in the film, in that kind of the under the huge weight of the pressure of the hierarchy in that place are also dealing with other types of silencing as well. Yeah. So that, that was a big theme. Um, but it's a, a crazily intense, um, one night time frame in which she's kind of plunged into the darkness, like you say, plunged into a dark space where she is forced to confront, um, everything that she hasn't said or she hasn't been allowed to Mm -hmm. say. And then uh, it all gets expressed in a very extreme way. Yeah. Um, And I think watching um, the the actors and then watching the kind of last scenes as we're filming, I realised how kind of literal it was that I'd written something about, something quite rageful about women just not speaking Mm. and it's taken me such a long time to make this film as well that there's there's a kind of a sense for me at the end of the whole process that it's been like a kind of a big scream for me as well in a good way yeah um but but there's a kind of catharsis to the whole to the whole story and the whole point of it
0: it's strange how these things subconsciously find their way into a screenplay mm. or a story. I mean, in the beginning, it sounds like you didn't intend to cover these topics, but they just naturally emerged. And
1: Yeah. I mean, it was obviously very much about um, a repressed silenced character. Yeah. Um, Cause that was the topic, but, but the kind of layers and the layers that all the actors and HODs brought to it in their kind of, because there's, there's lots of other, this is about a kind of big, crime against a female in this place but there are lots of other moments in the story where we were trying to look at, at more kind of commonplace insidious um types of undercutting mm. and assaults and um people who are under pressure women who are under pressure putting that pressure onto other women and things that we can relate to really and um in a modern way and uh, a lot of the women on the crew and, and in the cast were, were, were talking about that a lot as we made it. So it kind of crystallized it all for me.
0: Yeah. I think that's the, one of the amazing things about the supernatural genre is how inexhaustible it is because there's so much room for metaphor mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, the idea of being haunted by things, I think it's why it's a genre that is not going anywhere. Unlike, you know, people claim to be sick of zombies or clowns or found footage or whatever. I don't think supernatural is going anywhere because there's so many different interpretations and there's so many different personal stories. And ultimately, supernatural stories are stories about humans and the human condition. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And that's why they're so exciting to me because because it is all from psychology. It's something... Um, that you don't want to see or that you don't want to remember or um, that's that's part of you but but you can't acknowledge it yeah. um, or part of your family or part of a building um, but it's all completely human and it's and it 's all real in a sense it's just you get to express it in a really poetic
2: kind
1: mm-hmm. of, um, visually rich way.
0: Yeah. How did you determine how to depict your ghosts? I'm always curious about that because there are people doing differently. And I think if they're like too transparent, it's kind of weird, but <laughs> it's just, it's different. It's like, it's people do it kind of differently and it's a real nuance yeah. to making them feel real, but they don't want to be kind of too cliche looking. But I thought the way that you depicted them was, was pretty interesting. How did you arrive at the visual style of the ghosts themselves?
1: Um, That was a challenge, actually, for all the same reasons you're saying. I'm very, um, uh, I, I'm a bit allergic to things looking too kind of CGI and it it just doesn't have any impact on me emotionally at all. Yeah. Um, so in a way it's lucky because we didn't have the budget for anything complicated in that way anyway, (laughs) but I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted my definite, um, ambition was to do everything in camera, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, and we did do that apart from a tiny little bit of kind of atmospheric ash that's in the story. Um, everything was done in camera. So it was, I kind of treated that like another character in the story in the same way. I mean, you know, she was, she was there, she acted, she had her own storyline. She was real for for Rose, who plays Val. Um And... What we did do was um, move her from a kind of monstrous place through the early encounters, through to a, an almost fully human-looking version, mm-hmm. um, and that was because I had this idea that well, I didn't, I didn't want it to just look like a standard ghost girl anyway right. um, from the beginning. But that was partly that but also that within the concept um i think i was thinking about the way that um victims in those settings have been demonized mm-hmm. and been the ones to kind of seem like the problem right and seem like uh something monstrous about them and so i was kind of thinking of that as my starting point and then wanted to to, to reveal her as who she really was which was you know, a young woman and, a, and the actual victim.
0: Interesting. Were there any other supernatural or non supernatural touch film touchstones for you when making this?
1: Yeah, there was, um, a very, a non supernatural one, which isn't even a horror, but, um, I started looking at Robert Altman films, um, just cause I was looking at lots of films from that period. Yeah. But, um, I got very obsessed and so did the, um, DP in the production designer with three women Oh wow. um, because it's got such uh, it plays with reflections and mm-hmm. mirrors a lot. And I really wanted to do that um, in this uh, because it's all about identity. And I also, it, it just, it brings interesting depth to an image, even if you've got hardly any time to shoot it. Yeah. Very little production value I mean very little um, that you can bring apart from a few a few touches to quite a lot of the sets and shots um so, and it's just absolutely full of really distinct interesting images and it it made us think a lot about um, we didn't want to mimic this filmmaking of that style but we did end up thinking a lot about um, using a zoom mm. and um, just how to cover a scene very minimally um, from looking at, at films of that time. Um, the other one was uh, Images, his other, another early Robert Altman, um, Altman film, and Symptoms, which is a British, very strange British horror film.
0: Cool and the the sound design of this movie was very striking both the mm. overall the music but also mixed with this sort of soundscapes and I think sonically you did some interesting things could you talk about the sound design and the choices you made
1: um yeah the sound design and the score were they were quite kind of in dialogue with each other quite mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that's there is actually score um they worked quite closely, um, and then so in the end, with the sound design, we ended up just kind of the, the thing that we was most important to do was to create space, so there wasn't always a lot of sound going on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so there was there was kind of there's a richness to it, but we were very aware that we didn't want it to just kind of go on through the whole thing. Right, space to breathe. Um but that was really, really fun that part of it i love I love sound and um Max uh, Dewardner and um Elizabeth bernholz who did the score, they actually came to the hospital and did quite a lot of field recordings um.
2: Wow. recording
1: atmos in the huge corridors yeah. squeaky wheels on real old trolleys that they found all kinds of things, rattling pill bottles there was still quite a lot of random stuff left in this building so they found all sorts and recorded it um, and they used that to create quite a lot of the score and the sound designer also used those Atmoses to create some of his Atmoses. so mm. it really was born out of the building
0: that's really cool. Yeah, because it's yeah. difficult to create that constant sense of dread in a movie, sonically, if something is not happening on camera or on, on screen that's frightening. To keep that suspension of dread, I think that falls on on sound most of the time. And mm. uh, yeah, and you did that beautifully in this movie. I mean, it was very unnerving throughout the, the course of the movie, even when thing, unnerving things were not occurring on camera. You know, the yeah. anticipation element was, uh, was huge, and it felt like it was that's very cool. driven by the sound. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think those are the bits I actually really love and films the best is all the bits where stuff isn't happening right right <laughs> I can probably make a whole film of films of the bits before stuff happens <laughs> because I, I love the um I just love that anticipation but it, it, it's, that's when the textures get the richest I think is when it's not really about necessarily kind of a set piece or mm-hmm. um or a bit of action it's when you get to just look <sighs> at the setting look at the setting and look at um, the other elements to it and, and just sink into that world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. So you touched on... I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, nothing. Go
0: um, ahead. You touched on the fact that the success of this project was born in the midst of another project that did not work out. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of filmmakers... Get to that point where they're about to have something greenlit and they're about to make a, a project and the, and the rug gets pulled. And it, uh, I feel like a lot of people might not recover from that. And you touched on the idea of endurance as a filmmaker. Hmm. Could you tell us a little more about that time period and how you were able to bounce back? I mean, clearly it was good to have a champion in the organization, but a lot of times the seed of another project is present in the failure of a previous project because the, the, you pitched them a movie before and they clearly saw a lot of promise in you and you know Mm. here you are now but I feel like a lot of people may have given up because even when you do when you when you pitch a movie when you're about to make a movie it's exhausting I mean writing the script and rewriting and taking notes and taking meetings and it can take years and then to have the rug pulled out from under you it can be very disheartening but that did not sound like it stopped you could you tell us a little more about that time period and what got you through it
1: um I remember it being really destabilizing and really um, crushing. Um, but I'm funny, I think, and maybe there are lots of other people like this, but I kind of I, – I don't necessarily seem like the most confident person, but I do have a kind of real stubborn streak, um, just a kind of just bullish <laughs> – nice determination
0: need it in this business
1: (laughs) yeah and and so there's a kind of a bit of an element of fuck you this is gonna happen to the whole thing yeah um but also i just i almost kind of felt like i'd come too far to stop it's like you know you kind of i put so much effort into learning to write and leaving what i was doing before and I just didn't feel like stopping was an option even mm. I didn't know that it was necessarily gonna ever culminate into anything, but I feel like if you if it's something you you really want to do that you just have to push through it's like even if it doesn't go where you want it to go, I don't really know what the alternative is yeah or it was really <laughs> um I just you know I did have to do other work and stuff in between um and more kind of jobbing work but um so it's not like. I could afford to just sit around and and cross my fingers. But Mm -hmm. um, I think being stubborn and being resilient is pretty massive in the whole process.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. And like I said, having the sense, even if it hasn't worked out, the sense that some people have believed in you at some point. And I did have shorts that I've made and I had a ghost story short that, that went down really well here. So I had enough touchstones to go that you know it is crushing but Mm -hmm. you just carry on
0: yeah and it sounds like this represented also a career shift for you because it sounds like you were doing a different kind of work while transitioning into into filmmaking was that a difficult transition for you or was it something you were able to balance
1: (laughs) um i always have worked in the media so i was directing documentaries and factual programs for tv here um And then when it was actually having children, I kind of realized that I didn't want to direct anything unless I really, really wanted to direct it. I didn't want to leave them. Yeah. Um, And so I was like, okay, if I'm going to do it, it's going to have to be everything for me. It's going to have to be just what I want to do that I really believe in. Um, And so I kind of, and in the meantime, because I I didn't really want to be away anyway, I taught myself to write really started writing Mm -hmm. um and and it just went from there slowly
0: how did you teach yourself to write
1: just started
0: (laughs) hardest part isn't it
1: (laughs) just did it i've done some short films um which is quite a different challenge to writing a feature in, in lots of ways um it turns out but yeah just just no kind of particular method or particular book that that unlocked it all for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of would start with this book then with that book and try this and try that and I learned lots of bits and boards from everything mm-hmm. um, but I think ultimately it was uh, watching loads uh, of films, remembering what I love about which films. Yeah. Um, just having your kind of touchstone things that make sense to you, not trying to be a different type of person or filmmaker to who you probably are Mm -hmm. Um, and trying to choose subject matter that felt meaningful so that I didn't get bored or give up or get disillusioned, Mm -hmm. you know, something that would help with the resilience.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's nothing will make you more resilient than really caring and really believing in your project.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and with the kind of layer above you a bit, you know, that you Mm -hmm. can feel you know, this is not a world-changing film, but but there is stuff in it that matters to me and that mattered um, to the people that worked on it, and that counts for quite a lot.
0: Yeah. How did you... I feel like when it comes to um, particularly low-budget filmmaking, it is very imperative that you have a crew that completely believes, and cast, that believes in the movie and believes in the message of the movie. And you were dealing with some very big themes in this movie. Could you talk about how you conveyed these themes to the cast and crew because I feel like when they know what they're making when you when you you know not to <laughs> use your metaphor but when you take them out of the dark um on what the movie is about and they they understand like this is this movie is about some very important things they will probably work harder because they will care more uh could you talk about your your communication with your cast and crew in terms of the making of the movie
1: well the first kind of thing that was really exciting about the whole process for me was that um there were some people who just really got what it was about just from reading the script straight away and they it was I I was just so relieved that I had managed to communicate some of the stuff in my head onto the paper into their head um and that it people people just got behind um the the notion not not necessarily in a political way, mm-hmm. although I, I noticed that quite a lot of, of the women on the crew were really interested in the kind of some of the more detailed politics in there um, that just feels so widely relevant. That was really motivating um, but then I mostly communicated through through pictures really I mean mm-hmm. we had a, a lot of uh, chats, but I had a lot of images um, that were my kind of blueprint for. For conversations, um, and my all my HODs were so um, they were so good at listening and then building from that place and mm. bringing their own layer to it. But it was just an incredibly unegotistical, generous, exciting, collaborative wow. team and way to work. It was so super fun and creative. And I couldn't quite believe, I I kind of thought it was just going to be like walking through hellfire, to be honest, the experience. (laughs) And I've been on plenty of sets where I thought, you know, this is about dynamics and this is tough and it's not, it's hard to actually focus in on the point of what you're doing Mm -hmm. because there's so many things flying around, um, power mongering and just dynamics, but um, there just wasn't a jot of that at all wow. everybody was just so interested and so intelligent in the way that they approached it and the producers did a really fantastic job at kind of putting the right people in front of me um, all our HODs were women um, which wasn't intended but was a kind of lovely thing to see mm-hmm. on the set um, and they'd loved to getting into the detail of it, really. I suppose that's what we really enjoyed was the detail of how how to build an atmosphere from with every little choice that we made. Right. Um, so we didn't have a huge amount of money, but so colour became massively important. Like, you know, there's going to be a wall in the back of the shot. It might be the only thing in the back. So <laughs> what colour is it going to be? Yeah. Um, a lot of our money went on, on kind of just Picking the right things, um, which was a really lovely process um, and controlling, I, I, I kind of think colour's really exciting in low-budget filmmaking because you can't, you can't control a lot of your situation, you mm. can't build the perfect set, you can't have the perfect, the, the huge lighting rig or the, every lens you want, um, but you can decide how you're going to present what's there and and paint it in a way that works for you. Um, and then light it that bit in the way it works for you. Um, so we thought about that a lot. And then, um, again, little things that aren't expensive, but were just really exciting and fun to do. Um, Holly Smart, the costume designer, we had the idea to, to start our lead um, Val in a kind of pristine nurse's uniform. And then we had, like, 12 different versions of that costume and Mm -hmm. as you go through the story they get a little bit darker the shades Mm. of the the uniform until the end she's kind of basically blended into the institution into the walls interesting yeah so we had a lot of fun just thinking about how what is it in an image that kind of sends little signals Mm -hmm. to you when you watch it what makes something creepy um, and what creates an atmosphere that Was super fun,
0: that's really cool. Mm. And I bl- Shudder has acquired the movie, right? Yeah, what has it been like working with Shudder?
1: Um, well, it's the beginning of the journey, um, but it's been great so far, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's some really exciting stuff happening with Shudder. Oh, yeah, I think like you know, some of the stuff that they're behind is is the stuff I would seek out and watch. I'm not a kind of um general horror fan it's quite specific what i love mm-hmm. um and the the last few things that i've really liked have been on shudder so
0: yeah they're putting out yeah. so much great stuff and they're resurfacing yeah. a ton of old great stuff they're doing a bunch of silent films a bunch of hard to find giallo films they're yeah. doing a lot of indonesian horror is amazing there are all these yeah. great movies coming out of Indonesia. A lot of ghost movies, actually, too. And yeah, they are, yeah. well, one that, is more yeah. fantastic than the next.
1: <laughs> yeah, that part of the world is a massive influence on me. Uh, the, the kind of the way, the conviction with which they tell their ghost stories, oh, and God. the fact that it's such such a kind of still live part of of culture. It feels that. Yeah. It's like it's not historic. It still feels quite kind of present.
0: Yeah, because they're um, they're they're very outspoken believers of. Things that are supernatural, so all this subtlety that us Americans add to our horror movies go out the yeah. window. There's yeah. feel like Evil Dead, like a w- <laughs> there's uh may the, the may the devil take you series, may the devil take you, and then may the devil take you two are just thrill rides, and just they don't okay. let up for a second. Uh, but okay. yeah, it basically is the Conjuring plus Evil Dead in Indonesia, yeah. and they're <laughs> mind blowers. They're so good.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm probably more on the kind of understated end of the scale as much so i i would probably love that and, and enjoy it but the films that really um really stay with me are more kind of under the skin type films and i loved um la lorona
2: oh yeah
0: it was excellent
1: that that was really kind of haunting in a different way
0: yeah Um, So clearly you had done some shorts before this that prepared you to a certain degree. But, uh, I mean, as they say, shorts are sprints and then features are marathons. Were there any big lessons that you learned while making this movie that you'll carry on to your next movie or overall filmmaking career? Um,
1: Yeah, there was a couple of things that I think I did, which I'm really pleased I did, and that worked. Um, And that that was, um, I was... I prepared intensely um, in terms of shot listing. I kind of knew every scene in my head mm. in detail exactly what the shots would be. But because I knew I probably wouldn't get to do any of that <laughs> when when the reality <laughs> hit and I was standing there and I thought I'd had two hours, but I had 10 minutes, um, I, I needed that security blanket to have had some of that thought process and have the confidence then to go, well, I can't do any of it. So I'm just going to do this one image or this one shot or a couple of them. Um, and that was just a really great kind of touchstone, um, in terms of going into it, feeling on top of things. Yeah. Also having gone through that process with my DP, Laura Bellingham. So we were so kind of gelled on our language and our visual language, which again, when everything was, things were going wrong and, and it was, we were just always up against the clock we had all our shortcuts and we had some good conversations and some good kind of plan B's. Um, And quite a few times we did end up having to do a scene in one shot, for example. I kind of anticipated that might've been the case. And so there was no panic ever. And it felt like because of that, the experience felt really enjoyable quite a lot of the time. That's great. Um, Yeah. One thing I would hope to not repeat is that, I just felt so unhealthy by the end of it. I mean, it's oh, just really? kind of, yeah, it's just one of the, like, there was no way to break um, and, you, and you can't stop because it just is what it is. But um, I would, if I could wave a magic wand, I would be able to exercise and walk and stretch <laughs> and do things in between because right. I was physically wrecked by the end of it, but mentally very well.
0: <laughs> well, that's good at least. Well, Karina, thank you again for this. This was a whole lot of fun, and huge congratulations on the movie. Any parting wisdom or advice for those aspiring filmmakers out there?
1: Um, I think for me, it is about finding things that you that are meaningful to you and that you find disturbing, um, focusing in in a personal way and. I think if you do that, there's a good chance it will be meaningful to other people.
0: Great. Perfect words to end on. Thank you again. Thanks a lot. Alright, here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Karina. Number one, revisit the 70s. The 70s was a very innovative time for filmmakers in the wake of the dissolving of the studio system. Here you saw the unbridled rise of auteur and renegade filmmakers, and as far as decades, none of them compare to the 70s in terms of creativity and just brash filmmaking. While making The Power, Karina's cinema diet consisted of a number of 70s films, and she focused intently on the work of Robert Altman. The edge and sophistication of the 70s sensibility shines through in the power and gives it a very noticeable quality of filmmaking and interesting storytelling. It also helps that the story takes place in the 1970s. If you're a student of film, it would behoove you greatly to dive into this decade as much as possible, as this was truly a golden age for independent film and maverick directors. Number two, Take care of your health. Okay, I'll admit this is a boring one, but before you ring me out on Twitter, think about it. Karina learned that your health is one of your greatest assets as a director, which is absolutely true, but often the last thing to be taken care of while making a movie. We've talked about this a lot, but yes, while making your films, there will be sleepless nights. There will be uphill battles. There will be way too much coffee and aching bones. But it greatly benefits you as a director to take care of your health as much as you can. Being healthier increases your physical endurance, your emotional resilience, your problem-solving ability, and your overall cognition. These are all things you will need high supplies of when you're on set. So as hard as it is, do what you can to get adequate sleep exercise and a decent diet number three find a mentor slash cheerleader it's a difficult long slog to get movies made Things go wrong, projects get canceled all the time, but it's important to keep the faith. When Karina's first project was unexpectedly canceled, she was very dismayed, but she had a pivotal mentor who expressed confidence in her work, and that's all she needed to push through this difficult time. Sometimes all it takes is for one person to believe in you, for you to believe enough in yourself to push forward during adversity. This worked very well for Karina, who years ago was in a very difficult and frustrating place, but now has an awesome first feature. Under her belt. Try to find those mentors out there whose feedback can help shape your ability. They can not only improve your craft, but their confidence in you can help push you through the tough times. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I am Nick Taylor, that's I am Nick Taylor, and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.